Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, two guests, uh, our producer and friend, Hugo Lindgren, who uh, is with us every week, uh, and Julie Wernersbach. Julie is the incoming manager of P&T Knitwear, which avid listeners of the podcast will know is the name of the bookstore and podcast studio that we're opening on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the next few months. Uh, and we're going to talk about kind of the fall book preview and and kind of how she kind of views the whole book world. But we're going to start with just me and Hugo talking about uh, the recent court ruling in California that overturned Prop 22 uh, within the very niche world of sharing economy companies and worker classification fights and all of that. This is a, a seismic development uh, and obviously matters a lot in the tech and venture world. So thought we'd spend uh, a, a few minutes uh, going through it. Bradley, you you, talk, you wrote a piece for TechCrunch. Why don't you why don't you quickly give us the overview yeah. of what you wrote there, and, sure. and and listeners can obviously follow up and read it on TechCrunch. Um, but but go ahead and just tell us a little bit about what your what your argument is. Yeah. So just a history for those of you who don't know this: um, companies like Uber and others develop the people working on the platform are independent contractors known as 1099s, not full time employees. That's pretty integral to the success of their business model. Then uh, unions and others start advocating that workers on the platform should be employees, um, not contractors, in part pretty good arguments, like people should be entitled to benefits and pension and stuff like that. Some obvious left unsaid is, you know, if, if you can organize uh, those workers, it's, it's the biggest opportunity for growth for private sector unions in the U.S. in, in decades. Um, and so that led to the passage of legislation in California called AB5 in the fall of 2019 that converted all gig economy workers over to uh, full-time W-2. Um, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and a few others then funded a massive campaign called Prop 22 that was on the ballot in California uh, last November, or November, yeah, last November, to overturn AB5, they won pretty convincingly. They spent about $200 million doing so. And so that converted everyone back to independent contractors again. Uh, and then last week, uh, a judge, or actually it was late, late the week before that, um, struck down a district court judge, Prop 22, saying that it was illegal because it bound the California legislature to future actions in, that, that were not permissible. Um, that case will then go to the Ninth Circuit and then possibly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Was 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 that a was that a surprise? Do you think to the to the? Uh... Yeah, I I, I think it was. Uh, I think in part because the ruling itself seems to be a little out of left field on the law. Uh, in fact, even though the Ninth Circuit is considered to be the the most liberal uh, judicial circuit out there, uh, I think there's a decent shot that they overturned the decision just based on the law itself. Um, let alone the Supreme Court, which now has a you know six to thirty kind of conservative uh, advantage. Um, and so, on one hand, it, it may not mean that much because I think that ultimately Prop Twenty Two will be reinstated uh, and it will hold. Um, but it takes an issue that's been in flux in different states and federally uh, for a couple of years now uh, and just mixes it up further. So uh, Congress uh, has passed out of the House something called the Pro Act which would basically be the federal equivalent of AB5. Uh, it was assumed to be dead in the Senate, but whenever they run that $3.5 trillion spending bill, um, this will at least start off as an amendment to that bill. I suspect it gets stripped out at some point. Um, and then different states, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Washington State, others uh, are all looking at 
legislation that is either similar to AB5 that would reclassify sharing economy workers or create some sort of hybrid model or something else, um, the passage of Prop 22 so overwhelmingly created a lot of political momentum against worker classification reform. The overturning of Prop 22 by the judge, even if temporary, kind of reshifts some of that momentum uh, back towards uh, the unions and, and the anti-sharing economy. People. What is the upshot of this for consumers? Obviously, it's a big deal if you're an executive at DoorDash or at Uber or Lyft or whatever. But if you're someone who's a customer of, of some of these companies or, or might be a customer of them, what does it change? What does it do? I mean, look, fun- fundamentally, if you are a, a customer of these companies and their workers are declared to be W-2 full-time employees and not independent contractors, um, it means that the cost of whatever service it is you're procuring, whether it's getting a ride or having food delivered or whatever else, is going to go up because the cost for the platforms will go up, they say, by 20%. Uh, they will ultimately have to pass those costs along to Uh, the customers and customers will have to probably both wait longer for their food or for their ride or something else uh, and pay more. Now, most of these companies are are like burning cash as it is. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, Uber and Lyft have been struggling to get to some level of profitability. They both say that they're they're just about there. Um, But the challenge is ride sharing, especially, is is a tough business. Um, You've got uh, multiple companies competing for both drivers and for customers. Uh, they keep the price as low as they can as a result. Um, that helps spur growth, uh, but it doesn't really help with profitability. And so we've seen companies try different things like Uber, uh, really building out Uber Eats, buying Postmates, buying Drizzly, um, or Lyft investing really heavily in stuff like Prop 22 to keep their current business model afloat. Um, if that were to change, you could argue that uh, both the companies would have a hard time making it through and, and the value proposition they provide to consumers in terms of the product and the cost would change significantly. Now, um, you wear a few different hats, as uh, listeners of the podcast know well. As, a, as a, a venture investor, how does this change your outlook uh, in terms of the way you're looking at companies or, or, or just mapping your strategy going forward? Yeah, not, not that much in the sense that I, I actually, despite the fact that, you know, I kind of made my bones in tech and, and money in tech uh, through Uber uh, and the sharing economy, I don't think we have any sharing economy investments out of Touch Venture Partners. Um, I tend to be a little bearish uh, on the sector overall. So on one hand, you know, even, even when things look good, um, I, I wasn't a huge uh, follower on that. On the other hand, um, if I loved the sharing economy company that was brought to me today by our investment team, I would not let this court decision, you know, change my my view of the deal itself. And, and what about as a as a political strategist? Is this an opportunity for Tusk strategies, or or is this something you're looking at getting involved? I mean, in the, uh, yeah. Look, what, what what it means is you're going to have now even more active fights in half a dozen really big states in the 2022 state legislative session. So if you are a political consulting firm and you're looking for clients, um, the DoorDashes of the world, the Ubers of the world, all of a sudden become uh, more likely because they're going to need help. Uh, now with us, I, you know, I don't know what we'll choose to work on or not. I think I'm not sure I'd want to work for either of those two particular companies. Um, but um, but yeah, it, it just, look, from a very selfish, narrow standpoint, and this is true, whether it's uh, on the political consulting side, the venture side, or whatever else, but, but the more political and regulatory confusion, the better it is for us because 
that leaves very few people standing who can actually navigate. It. Let me ask you one more question. I know we're going to get to your, your third hat uh, as a, a, the owner of a bookstore, but but I, I, I'm, I'm curious about where does this, where is the policy solution going to come from here that kind of like put some of these fights to rest? Who's the party that's going to come up with that? Yeah, it, it's going to be kind of a forward thinking labor leader along with the CEO of kind of one of the really big sharing economy companies coming together and saying, look, the reality is these are all laws that were created in the 1930s. The entire structure that we're working from right now is incredibly antiquated. And obviously the sharing economy companies want to advance the 1099s because that benefits their bottom line. Obviously, the unions and others want everyone to be W-2s. That benefits their bottom line. But the reality is it's been a very long time since the days of Francis Perkins. Um, and I think we're at a point now where we can recognize the sharing economy, which didn't exist e even really all that much a decade ago, let alone 90 years ago, um, is now here. It's here to stay. There are a lot of people who both want some of the normal protections and benefits that come with being an employee, but also the, the flexibility that comes with being an independent contractor. Uh, and there's going to have to be a third way written into the law to both accommodate and account for these workers. So, you know, it's going to happen eventually. But but right now, what you've got is just people on both sides saying, I'm either I'm on Team Uber or I'm on Team Unions. Uh, and they're just looking at it purely as a political calculation. Um, and it will take someone with a little bit of bravery and a little bit of brains to move us past that. All right, let's get to that third hat. We have Julie joining us. Uh, Julie, are you there? I'm here. Yeah, hi. Hey, Julie. So um, Julie is the uh, manager uh, of P&T Knitwear. I think some listeners will know P&T Knitwear is the name for the bookstore and podcast studio because when my family came to this country in the 1950s, uh, you know, a, a job that Jews could get pretty easily was in the garment uh, business. So my grandfather went into that, started a, uh, a sweater store. It was called P&T Knitwear. Uh, he, his, pub, his partner was named Mike Pudlow, so Pudlow and Tusk. Um, it was on the same street as our bookstore, uh, a little further south, but, but Orchard Street. Uh, and from what I'm told, the, the sweater store was mainly empty cartons sitting on the shelves. It looked like they had some inventory and some product. Uh, but uh, eventually they were able to, to succeed with that and, and, and come out okay. And so in, in honor of that, we're calling the, uh, the store P&T Network. So, so Julie, Julie, I wanna, I'll, I'll start just asking Julie a question because I, I, we're going we're gonna to be looking forward to, to both the store, which is opening in November, and also um, uh, the sort of great books of, of the fall that she's got her eye on. But because we're in the last week of summer, I mean, it's not the official last week of summer, but it's the – it really is the way you know people live their lives. It's the last week of summer, so you basically have time for one more book. So, Julie, I want to—I just want to start by asking you if, if you were going to do a blanket suggestion uh, to to the listeners of Firewall for for how they should spend their last uh, week of summer reading. What's your what's your number one selection? My number one pick, which has been my number one book that I read this summer and that um, that I've been telling everybody to read, is Intimacies by Katie Kitamura. Um, her debut novel, The Separation, came out a few years ago with Ripperhead. This one is also with Ripperhead. Um, and in this one, she's following a translator at The Hague um, who has to translate for a former president who's accused of war crimes. And she gets into this sort of, she gets into what the nature of translation really is um, and what the limitations of language in a really interesting way. Um, but really what I love about it and why I think there, there's something about this, you know, the end of summer is full of so much of, so much anticipation and kind of 
anxiety and tension about the fall and everything that comes back with the fall. And Katie Kitamura can write tension like nobody else. That whole novel is like one taut string. That narrator is getting to know this, you know, the human side of this president who's done these awful, awful things. And she's also in this relationship with a man who's estranged from his wife and you don't really know where it's going to go. And I just, I was on the edge of my seat with every single page. Um, and I think it's, that, that's my book. That's my pick. That's a good pick. Bradley, you didn't, Bradley sent me a list. He sent us both a list of all the books he read this summer. I don't think that was on there. Was it Bradley? No, it wasn't. So it's, it, it's now on the list. So th these were actually books that I've read over the, the summer. And I think the spring to a certain extent that I really liked. Um, it doesn't mean uh, that it's a summer read, especially in any way, a beach read, but I'll, I'll quickly go through it. Um, and then, you know, I'll, I'll call out a few that seem like if you were trying to just speed through it in a week, uh, what might go really well. And so, wait, uh, I'd, I'd also ask Julius, after he reads the list, I want to hear which ones of those you've read and and, and uh, endorse also. But go, go ahead, Bradley. All right. So uh, Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby. And that would be one that you could definitely knock out in the next week. Uh, How to Kidnap the Rich by Rahul Rania, also something you could read pretty quickly. Um, the Plot by Gene Hanf Korolitz, uh, same thing. Uh, the second season by Emily Adrian also could be done pretty quickly. Um, in the Quick by Kate Hope Day, if you could pull that off. Um, this one would be hard to probably do in, between now and Labor Day, but uh, Empire of Pain, which is a nonfiction book about the Sackler family uh, by Patrick Ratton Keefe, and it's all about the OxyContin uh, crisis and their role in it. Um, the Fish That Ate the Whale uh, by Rich Cohen, actually one of the few non-new books uh, on here, and it's about the uh, founder of United Fruit. Uh, Back to Fiction, Gold Diggers by uh, Sanjia Sathian, Good Company by Cynthia Sweeney, Superhost by Kate Russo. And by the way, all three of those would probably be uh, doable in the next week or so. Uh, my Year Abroad by Chang Ray Lee. That's actually my favorite book of the year so far. Uh, Who is Maude Dixon by Alexandra Andrews, Paradise Nevada by Dario Diofibi, uh, 2034 by Elliot Ackerman and James Staravos, and The Jesus Nut by John Pranther. So, Julie, which of those books uh, speak to you? My, you know, my top pick is going to be Gold Diggers. I, I actually listened to that book. I've been getting into audiobooks a lot lately, and I listened to that one earlier this summer and really loved sort of writing about um, kind of like a little bit of an inside of like tech culture a little bit to me as a total outsider to that world. It felt that way where she's, you know, you have the main characters at those parties and, you know, who work in that industry and are having those conversations. Um, and I thought it was very inventive. So, I would go with that one because it has a little bit of a fantastical element. And I think that's a nice way to hang on to summer just for one more week. Um, and then I would, you know, Cynthia Dupree Sweeney, I, you know, I, the nest I love, I haven't read the company, but that's the one that I would want to grab with me and take, take to the beach. So those are my two. Yeah. I, I would, would second. I think the company would be a, a great choice. I really enjoyed it. In fact, her first book, the nest got a huge amount of attention and, and praise. And I thought it was pretty good. Not great. Um, and only read Good Company because the reviews were so strong. And I thought Good Company was significantly better. So if you liked The Nest, you would probably love Good, Good Company. Bradley, why did you, why did you write, read that right? Why did you read that, that book about the United Fruit Company? Um, you know, someone recommended it to me, and I checked it out. And, and I'm, look, I'm an easy mark in the sense that if someone recommends a book to me, unless I know I'm going to hate it, I'll order it. Um, and so, I, you know, for every... 10 books I order, I don't even intend to read more than half of them. Uh, and I probably do read like a third of them. So um, I ordered it and it was just, you know, it was about a guy named Samuel Zamuri. He was an immigrant, I think from Hungary, Romania, 
who came to this country with nothing, went to New Orleans, uh, got into the fruit business, and eventually became the, the owner and CEO of United Fruit, uh, sparked multiple um, civil wars and unrest in Latin American countries uh, all over the place. In fact, that's why the term Banana Republic exists, because his main product was, was bananas. Uh, it was a really good book. So, you know, not not contemporary. It's, it came out maybe in the last 10 years, but I would recommend it. Julie, what's your last big uh, nonfiction winner? That would, Which one connected with you? Um, off of this list specifically? No, no, just generally. You don't have to, because I think that's there's only like two nonfiction ones on that list. Um, the, you know, the one that really, the other, the nonfiction that I've been recommending this summer, and it's it's not going to be a tiny one. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list, and it was number one almost immediately, but how the Word is Passed by Clint Hillsmith, um, which is one of the best books that I read this year. I'm really digging into American history. And, you know, he's he's a poet, and I really, I have such a soft spot for the poets. <laughs> I love it when they take on narrative. And I think that, you know, he's done such a good job in this book of using, you know, American history and, um, and his own responses to it in a way that is never sort of heavy-handed, um, but just really, really effective. And so that's, that's my nonfiction pick for the summer. Indefinitely, frankly. So let's let's talk about the fall, uh, Julie. This is obviously your first fall looking at books for your for your new job. Um, what's jumped out at you, and and maybe you can even talk a little bit about how you even do it. Like like you know, there's a lot of publicity. There's a lot of big books this fall. There's Egger, Steingart. Um, uh, so many times, yeah. So, so what? What's the? What's the? How do you go about it? That's not just like following the 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 sort of publicity campaigns and really try to find some gems that may not be, you know, have huge, you know, promotional budgets behind them. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, yeah, this is my first fall, you know, buying for P and T knitwear, but I've been I've been in this game for a long time and fought, you know booking authors for the Texas Book Festival or, you know, just figuring out what the fall marketing is going to be for a big indie bookstore, you know, it does take a lot of time to dig in because like you said, you know, there are some books that have such huge marketing budgets behind them that you you, you're, you can't avoid them. And those you almost don't even have to think about quite as much because you know that your customers are going to come in looking for them. So you just make sure that you have them. But at the same time, some of those big books I do like to dip into because I want to know, you know, I want to know if it's really worth the hype. Um, so, you know, and some of them I generally want to read, you know, like Colson Whitehead has a, a book coming out this, this fall, Harlem Shuffle, on, uh, in September. And I, I loved it. I was so happy, so happy to love it, which also kind of tends to happen. You know, there can be a big book that has a lot of... So you've already, you've read it. Yes, I've read that one. That's great. But it's funny because it's I, I made a list of, of fall books I was excited for, but also we've had a little bit of a problem in that Howard and I just haven't loved any books so far, either that are set in New York City or about New York City. There's a few that have been good, but, but at least not on the fiction side. Um, and so a, a Colson Whitehead book about Harlem felt felt like our, a very reliable backup that if, not, if nothing else, that's going to be good and probably worthy of the award. For sure, for sure. You know, this one is not, you know, Nickel Boys, Underground Railroad, obviously, were both very very tough books to read and in some ways and very important histories and you know and obviously underground really was you know had some fantastic elements to it but um but was a tough book you know and harlem shuffle was a little bit lighter the letter that came with it you know he um often for these bigger ones they'll have the authors write a little like letter to booksellers that they print on the jacket of, of all the galley copies and this one was him saying you know like this one's going to be a little bit different folks <laughs> it's going to be a little bit lighter and it is it, it almost reads you know 
not quite like crime fiction-y, but a little bit, you know, there's a guy who has this resale shop in Harlem and, you know, he has this father who had this somewhat criminal past kind of doing heists and things like that. And he starts to get involved in that himself. And it's kind of looking at race relations in Harlem, but also, also even getting into gentrification a little bit, but it's still this sort of like, it has a, a very kind of different plot and narrative sort of structure than, than his last two. Um, I was really. Is it more like the illusionist? Yeah. 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 So just that, yes. I, That's still my favorite book by him. As good as the last two are. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so that one I did read and I'm super excited about, but in general, kind of my approach to these things is I picked the big ones that I'm going to dip into. Um, like next I'm probably, I just moved and my books are everywhere, but if I can find my copy of the new Lauren Groff, which is coming out like in two weeks, um, I want to read that one. I've heard that it's just really, really good. I'm kind of like nuns and revolts and looking at sort of, um, elements of the patriarchy and that sort of looking at that thematically. So I do want to dip into that, but things like, you know, the, Jonathan Franzen has a new book coming out this fall. You can't miss it. You know what I mean? And so I'm not jumping on that one um, because I know, I know who's going to buy it and I know we're going to sell it and it's going to, you know, and the review, it's going to get reviews up the wazoo. And so we'll know whether or not it's worthwhile. Right. So I don't really feel like they need to spend my time with that because my approach to these things in general, whether it's booking an author or stocking a book on a shelf or figuring out what, you know, what that fall market is going to look like. I personally am always really looking for who are those writers who I can support, who I can help, who haven't, uh, who maybe don't have those big marketing budgets behind them or, you know, who just need, will, could use a little boost to make breakthrough. Not that I'm kind of aggrandizing my position, but I think that that's the way that it happens, you know, it's like a little bit of word of mouth here, a little bit of word of mouth there, especially among booksellers. When I see, you know, friends of mine share, you know, tweeting about what they're reading and bookseller friends of mine tweeting about what they're reading, I pay attention to it, you know, because I feel like that's something that indie bookstores can really do is get behind those books. Um, so, so I'm, I'm a, like, I'm a fiction writer. I love short fiction. I, you know, I love novels and all that kind of stuff. So that's the stuff that I jump to first and really try to, to look for and find. Um, but that, you know, you can, you can read a lot of debuts before you find one that you really feel about. <laughs> so it's time consuming, but that's, you know, that's the curatorial process. That's what, that's what indie booksellers do, you know, is put that time in to get a sense of it. Julia, have you read the new Sally Rooney book yet? I have not read the new Stella Rudy, just because also that one. Are you, are you a fan of hers? Um, I, I actually haven't read her. <laughs> I'll confess that. Um, that's also a bookseller kind of mandate is you never lie about what you have and haven't read. Um, I actually, you know, that's one of those, again, when a book like that really takes off, it kind of like, it's like it's already, it's already taken care of, you know, and I don't have to necessarily worry about supporting it. I know it's going to sell no matter what, so then I start to look for something else. But I am interested in it. I, ha you know, I have had that one recommended to me by people whose opinions I really respect. Um, and yeah, like just- Did yeah. you like Sally Rooney? I'm sorry, I shouldn't cut you off, but then I did it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 read, I think I read both of her books. I, don't, I assume she just says two. I, I thought Conversations with Friends was incredible. I think in part also because um, I read it, I think before she really blew up. And so here were some books that I walked into with no expectations for whatsoever. And I just, it, it was amazing. I loved it. Um, I didn't, Normal People, which was her follow-up, which was a huge hit and like, you know, got her a ton of praise. Um, I liked it, but not as much. Um, you know, may, maybe I'm a little, it, it's, it's a lot about kind of sex and 
different sexual perversions and maybe I'm just too straight laced for it. But, um, but it wasn't, you know, I, I would say, but I, I still liked it enough that, that I'm looking forward to her, her book coming out this fall. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely one of the big ones that, that, you know, everyone has their eye on and I'm certainly, I'm excited for it. I think it'll be a good literary film this year. Julie, what about, what about nonfiction? What do you have your eye on? Um, let's see. Let me, let me grab my list. There are, there are a lot of good nonfiction this year. Um, you know, one of the ones that, um, it's coming out from Verso in November. It's maybe a little bit niche, <laughs> but it's called Everything and Less, the novel in the age of Amazon by Mark McGurl. And it's looking at how the, like, the way that books are sold online and especially on CC Amazon, how that may have changed the novel and literary culture and readers' expectations um, about, you know, even just like recommendation machines and things like that. So personally, I am really excited to meet that one. Um, there is also one of the big, big nonfictions this year in history is, um, of course, the 1619 Project, which had been, you know, a project of the New York Times Magazine. It's now a full book um, revisiting the origin story of this country and moving it back from, you know, not 1776, but 1619, when slave ships arrived. That's, that's huge. Like, they're, PRH is pushing a huge pre-order campaign for that through the Indies, and, like, that's going to be one of the biggest for sure. Um, and then there are a couple of others, like Maggie Nelson has a new book called On Freedom. I'm excited about that. That might be a little niche too. Um, and then like there, there's some random things this year, like Murakami has a book about the t-shirts that he loves and has collected. Like that's a really? oh yeah. that's I so my 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 daughter Abby just read his his short stories and like was loved them. I was like, wait, you have no idea what's coming. Like there's so many novels by him that I thought were a lot better than the stories. So uh, I didn't even know that there was a- uh, a I didn't even like his stories very much. It's true, I love his novels, but I mean, I just haven't read the right ones, I guess, but like- Well, so what would you guys, so if if, if I wanted to give Abby three of them, what would you give, uh, what would you recommend and do you think IQ84 shouldn't be on the list just because giving her a thousand page book would just be a turnoff immediately? I think that to trust your gut on that, because I, I, yeah, I think, I think handing over such a massive tome to a kid and saying, get through this. I think that can be a quick and easy way to kill the reading fire. Um, I, I, so, I agree, you know, but I think if there is a kid who might like a thousand page book, it would be Abby. So I would not rule that out. Although I think, I think Julie's opinion on that is valid for sure. Um, but there's something about about uh, about her that I could see I could see her like taking a thousand book a thousand page book challenge and and uh, and meeting it um, because after all um, her dad is like this crazy reader who I don't know how many books were on that list but um, but 25 books you read this summer um, yeah I, although my pace I'm still it's kind of like like when a professional athlete when they have a season that goes too long and they played in the Olympics and they're sort of have a down year the next year. Trying to read 100 books in 2020, um, I think it, there's still a hangover effect. Where I'm, I'm obviously reading, but I, I don't think I'm reading it nearly the clip that I was last year. I will say I think the Wind Up Bird Chronicles, which is not a, a, a short book either, but um, it is unbelievable um, and blew my mind. I, I would go with Kafka on the Shores, his, his number one, but Wind Up Bird's pretty pretty fantastic. Julie, you have a favorite? I was going to go with Wind Up Bird Chronicles as well, so I think that's great. There we go, Julie. Insane. Right. <laughs> um, I, I love the idea of your the, the random Mirakami book. Is there anything else that, that you'd want to throw out there that's just sort of an oddball that 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 seems kind of uh, promising? 
Um, you know, I don't know if it's an oddball, but it's interesting to me is um, Ai Weiwei, the artist, has a memoir coming out this year with Crown that's covering his own personal history and like a thousand years of the history of China. It's called A Thousand Years of Sorrow and Joys. And that just looks like a really interesting book to me. He's an interesting character. And so um, that is the other one that's kind of on, on my personal list. Um, and then there's another really, it's kind of a weird one. I don't know, I'm going to throw it out here just because it is sort of about economics. But um, uh, the Scott Taco Underhill wrote this book many years ago called Why We Buy, which is one of the like, like homes of, of retail and, and in terms of retail design. And it's something, it's a book that I've returned to again and again when thinking about things like, I don't know, the layout of a bookstore um, and, and, and customer flow and the way that human beings interact with objects in a retail space. Anyway, he has a new book called, I was thinking about this when you were talking about that, um, that other book Bradley earlier, but um, How We Eat, The Brave New World of Food and Drink. Um, that's looking at uh, just sort of the um, consumer systems around modern food. He's a consumer behaviorist. And so that one I actually have my eye on. It's probably not going to be the biggest one this year, but like just knowing the way that his brain works and, um, and how interesting that kind of stuff is, I'm looking at that one too. Yeah, that sh that sounds good. I'd read a book like that called The United States of Arugula a couple oh, of years ago. Yeah. I, I yeah. liked it. So. That was, yeah. Wasn't Paco Underhill made famous by Malcolm Gladwell? I think he was. I believe. He, oh, was he? I think, I think he? I think he plucked him from obscurity and, and made him famous. Um, I want to I want to plug a book, The War for Gloria by Atticus Litch. I read a book of his about five years ago called Preparation for the Next Life. Made a very powerful impression on me. Not the kind of book you forget. Oh, I read that. That was depressing as shit, but excellent. <laughs> well, this one sounds pretty bracing too. It's about a teenager taking care of his mother as ALS. There's also some mixed martial arts in there. Comes out next week. Already received an amazing review from Dwight Garner in the New York Times. Julie, give me another book that's on your radar. Something that's not likely to be on everybody's list. A, a dark horse. I mean, I don't know if this was a dark horse, but I want to say it out loud because I I'm reading it right now and I really enjoy it. Um, it's called The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. I don't know if you've read her before. She wrote um, A Tale for the Time Being, which came out several years ago. It's been a minute since we've had a new book from her. And this one opens with one of the most beautiful, like, death and funeral scenes I've ever read. I like her because she gets a little imaginative. She's like, and she bridges this really nice line between, like, literary that is like literary fiction that I think is still really accessible for a wider audience, which I'm, I'm always looking for those books. I'm always looking for that. Like, what is that top quality that isn't going to turn off your average reader? It's going to entertain them, but it's still going to have that language that I love so much. And in this one, it's a 13 year old begins to hear voices and objects after his father has died. And that's, this is not a spoiler to say that until the book opens. Um, but the book itself is a character and you get these chapters here and there where like the kid is speaking to the book as though like, you can't do that. You can't say that. How are you saying that? And the book is kind of talking back with him. And it's really like, it's this really cool kind of playful structure that I'm really getting into. And, um, and she's just a beautiful writer. I just, I'm falling in love with that one. So Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki, late September, it should be out. Okay, last dibs, Bradley. What are the fall books that are already on your list? Don Winslow has a new book coming out called City on Fire. Um, he has He's kind of like the incredible chronicler of the drug wars with Mexico and, and what that all means, but it's fiction and it's, it's fantastic. Um, Gary Steingart, and, and it's funny, Julie and I had an email exchange about this the other day where like as a 47-year-old Jewish Russian, you know, first-generation American from Russian, New Yorker, male Jew, like... He, I'm, I'm his demographic, like more than anyone else on the planet. So I like his books, uh, some of them more than others, but I, I, I'm a fan. 
He has a book coming called, called Our Country Friends. And there's a writer named Vince Pissarro that I'm not familiar with, but he's getting some attention for a book coming out called Crazy Sorrow. Um, and it takes place in New York City, I think, starting in the 1970s. And given my concern that we don't have enough good options for the Gotham Book Prize next year, uh, I'm very hopeful, at least, that this will, uh, this will be as good as people say. That sounds like the perfect spot to leave it. Julie, thank you so much for coming on. We'll no doubt be checking back with you as the date for the opening of P&T Knitwear approaches. Yeah, thank you. Happy to talk books next time. Thanks, guys.